come back to a couple of places of worship in a little while, a couple of places of worship that are placed throughout the service, but I thought tonight to kind of get us started that we would do a little time travel together. How does that sound? So when you're at the office next week and people say, hey, how was your weekend? It was great. I, I, I did a little time travel. We're going to travel in time. We're going to go back 2,000 years, and we're going to arrive in an ancient city called Jerusalem at a very critical time in history. In fact, this city at this point in time is in an uproar because people believe that there's going to be a revolt that's going to restore the nation of Israel like unto the days of David and Solomon. But the people that were his closest followers knew that he was not here to establish an earthly kingdom, but he came to build the kingdom of heaven. And here on this journey, as we're moving back through time, we find ourselves in this city and it's bustling with people because it's the feast of Passover and people have come from all over the world to celebrate this great feast. And it's on this moment, it's in this time that people are expecting Jesus the Nazarene to finally reveal who he is. For three years, he's demonstrated power that the world has never seen. Power over nature, power over every manner of sickness and disease, power over evil itself. He has even demonstrated power over death. And if those are not significant enough, he even demonstrated the power to inspire people in such a way that they began to live a different life. You see, all of those other ones, as you read throughout Scripture, you find people who who demonstrated great prophets of the old, like Elijah, that gave us glimpses of that kind of power. But the greatest power that Christ had was to inspire people in such a way that they walked away from the patterns of brokenness of their life and they became a different person. No one in history had ever demonstrated the power to transform a life. I'm going to invite you to set aside your device. It's not going to be a note-taking time together. That might come a little bit later as we share. But I want to read you a little bit of a story. This comes out of Killing Jesus. If you've not read, read this series, it's just a fascinating read. I'm going to break some rules about teaching tonight and read a little bit longer than normal. You're only supposed to read excerpts like this in shorter portions because people have, have, have limited attention spans, but we know the people of the City Life Church are a hearty people. Amen? Jesus endures. As with any other victim, his hands are manacled to the metal ring atop the scourging post, rendering him unable to move. Two legionnaires stand behind him, one on either side. Each grasps a wooden-handled whip from which extend three leather straps. Each thong is roughly three feet long, and today, rather than bits of metal or sheep bone, the executioners have affixed the tips with small lead weights. The choice is strategic. These dumbbell-shaped implements do not rip away flesh and muscle as quickly as the sharper points and tips because it's not yet time for Jesus to die. A third legionnaire stands to one side and he holds an abacus to keep track of the number of blows inflicted. Jesus feels the lash. 
There is no gap between the blows. The instant one executioner pulls back his whip, the other unfurls his lash across Jesus' back. And even when the tendrils of leather and lead get tangled, the soldiers don't stop. The most lashes a man can receive under the laws of Moses are 40 minus 1, but the Romans don't always trifle with Jewish legalities. And Pilate has told these men to lash Jesus, and now they do so until the Nazarene is physically broken but not yet dead. That is the order. Scourge the Nazarene, but under no circumstance is he to be killed. After the whipping, Jesus is unchained and helped to his feet. He has cried out in pain during his scourging, but he has not vomited or had a seizure as many do, demonstrating immense strength. Still, he is losing a lot of blood due to his severe lacerated back, and the lash marks extend all the way down to the back of his calves. In addition to the dehydration that has plagued him all night, Jesus is in the early stages of shock. The Roman death squad has clearly done its job, striking at the Nazarene with surgical precision. They have beaten him almost to death. Pilate has made it clear this will be the extent of their duties, but they stand by hoping for more just in case. Jesus' hands are still tied in front of him. He's slowly led back to the prison, where the Roman soldiers have their own brand of fun in this unique setting. Jesus does nothing as they drape that filthy purple cloak over his naked body, knowing it will soon stick to his wounds. The soldiers then make a faux scepter from a reed and thrust it into Jesus's hands, again mocking his claim of being king. Rather than take pity on a man who has just endured a scourging, the soldiers they spit on the Nazarene. Now if the soldiers had stopped there, it would be a moment of low comedy by a group of barbaric men, but these brutes now turn their mockery into sadism. The actions of Julius Caesar and so many other Roman warriors clearly show the unthinkable harsh punishment was a standard way to deal with enemies of Rome. There was even a certain pathological creativity to their methods. But now the soldiers guarding Jesus up the ante. This is not a single death squad, but an entire company of Pilate's hand-picked legionnaires. In an atrocious display, they begin to cut a tall white shrub. It features rigid elliptical leaves and small green flowers, but its most dominant characteristic is the inch-long curving thorns that sprout closely together. The soldiers are more than willing to endure the prick of these sharp spikes as they weave several branches together to form a crown. When they are done, the wreath makes a perfect complement to the reed and the purple cloak. All hail the king. Jesus is too weak to protest, and when the crown of thorns is fitted onto his head and the spikes press hard into his skin, they brush against the many nerves surrounding the skull. Almost immediately, they crash into bone. Blood pours down his face. Jesus stands humiliated in the small prison as the soldiers dance around him, some punching him. We also know that portions of his beard was pulled from his face, others spitting, and still others getting down on both knees to praise their king. In mockery. Much to the jailer's delight, they have contrived one of the most gruesome methods of torture conceivable. But just when it seems that Jesus can't take any more, the soldiers receive word that Pilate would like to see the prisoner, and once again Jesus is led out to the public square where the Sanhedrin and his loyal fo- and its loyal followers stand waiting. Jesus' vision has blurred. Fluid is slowly building up around his lungs. He's having a hard time breathing. He has predicted predicted his death all along, but the details of his demise are still shocking. The purple cloak is ripped away. 
but the crown of thorn remains. The death squad places a plank of unfinished wood on Jesus' shoulders. It weighs 50 to 70 pounds, and it's just a little less than six feet long. And its splinters quickly find their way into the open wounds of the Nazarene's body. The humiliation at Pilate's palace is now complete. The procession toward the place of execution begins. I, I share that extended story with you tonight because I want us to see the history and the truth of the reality of what happened to Jesus on this weekend that we share in communion together. I share it with you because I want to also give you the picture of what was happening right before this text that we're going to dig into a little bit together in this moment. You see, so many times as we're reading the Bible, we can push through them quickly, forgetting that these words were spoken in the context of the real lives of real people and real circumstances and real situations. And the words that I'm about ready to read to you come right after the moment of what we just shared. It's in Luke 23, in beginning in verse 28, it says, But Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children, for the days are coming when they will say, Fortunate indeed are the women who are childless in the wombs that have not borne a child and the breasts that have never nursed. People will beg the mountains fall on us and plead with the hills bury us. For if these things are done with when the tree is green, what will happen when it's dry? This is one of Jesus' most powerful sermons, and it's one of the ones that's the most overlooked. Jesus is being led away to the place of the skull, and the crowd is following to see this picture of a man. It was a gruesome activity. It was celebrated. Crowds would form just for the entertainment of the dying. But in the midst of those crowds, there would always be their family members. In the midst of those crowds, the, you see the contrast where people are laughing and cheering, and in the midst there's people that are wailing and crying because these are people's sons, these are people's fathers. And at the heart of this crowd, there's this group of Jewish women, and one of them is Mary, his mother, and you can imagine they're wailing and weeping and crying and begging the Roman soldiers to stop. And here in this moment, Jesus finds his strength once again. Here in this moment, where anyone else would have collapsed and died on the roadside, Jesus turns, beaten beyond recognition. The splintery, 70-pound, six-foot beam across his shoulders and the crown of thorns almost blinding him from the blood that washes over his eyes. He turns and he looks at these women and he says, don't cry for me, cry for yourself. And we read that and we go, are you kidding me? If there is any justification to weep for someone, surely this is the moment, right? It's his own mother. If there's any justification to have pity on someone, this must be the moment in Jesus sees his time is short. He's got one more opportunity to teach the world something about salvation. So he uses his own condition. He uses the picture of the brutality that he has suffered and the ugliness of his wounds to say to the world, if you think I look bad, you should see what you look like on the inside. You look at me and you see how hard, many of you, you, you can't, you have to look away. And what I want you to know 
is that from the beginning of time, as we've walked with people throughout creation, this is what we see inside of you. Daughters of Jerusalem, he says, don't, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. I have come to die such a brutal death for many reasons. The greatest of which is for forgiveness to come into the world, but it is also done in a way to create a picture so that you can see with the physical eye what your natural eye is unable to see on the inside. Me and the Father wanted to create a picture of the human condition. And this is what you would see if you had my eyes. But he doesn't stop there. He continues on. And he draws on the metaphor of the woman who's infertile. Now, Vanessa and I have many friends that are struggling with infertility. It's a hard journey for people. And if you're here tonight and that's part of your journey, then our heart goes out to you and then we stand with you in a place of prayer that God might smile on you if that's his will, that he might be able to send you on a journey of parenthood. And if it's not, then he's going to help you find a different road that's going to be just as wonderful because his plan is always good. But as hard as infertility is in this life, I'm telling you 2,000 years ago, it was almost unbearable. 2,000 years ago, women were property. 2,000 years ago, women did not have rights. 2,000 years ago, that one of the few ways that women could find some sense of value in an ancient world was through childbearing. So for many women who found themselves in a place of being barren, they, they had zero, they were discarded in the world. Looked upon as being useless. And Jesus has the nerve, speaking to a group of women, talk about insensitivity, to say to these women, if you think being infertile is suffering, you would rather choose that than to choose the condition of a life apart from me. He's saying to these women, and he's saying to this crowd, if you think, which they did, to be infertile, especially if you were a Jewish woman, that it was a curse that God had put upon you, which we know was not true, but that was the brokenness of their own belief system, that, that it was a way that God had punished. Jesus is saying to them, hey, there is something to be said for being cursed by God, but it's not infertility. To be cursed by God means to reject the forgiveness that I'm about ready to give to this world through the death that I'm about ready to endure. He goes on to say, as you read through that text, where he talks about the mountains and the hills and people will cry out, fall on us. And many people believe that, that this is a, a cry for death. It's a cry for a, a landslide of sorts to come and sweep them away because their misery is so great. And, and that might be a certain way to render the text. It's not the way that I would render it. There's another stream of, of, of interpretation that I'm more inclined to that, that believes that Jesus is saying to them, that there is no escape through human means, through the suffering of humanity, if you reject me. You see, because in ancient times in Israel, this idea of mountains and hills was very significant because when you were traveling, you would weave your path through the shadow of a mountain, especially during the heat of the day, because you would do anything to find rest from the sun. So these hills provided a shadow against the sun. It would, it would give them some means, especially if they had an opportunity to go through a valley. Anything they could do to find some sense of relief from the sun that was just brutal. 
We're going to be talking more about our trip later on that Marvin and I just got back from, from Haiti. It's the most intense heat I've ever experienced in my life. I've been to Central America. I've been to Niger, Africa, where, where on a cool day it's 125. Never experienced the impressiveness, oppressiveness of heat like we did in Haiti. If you found a tree that had a leaf only this big, we would be standing under it like this, right? Give me some relief. We would look forward to the 20 or 30 minutes that we would have late every afternoon just to get into the river, to, just to get your body temperature down to something that was safe. I remember towards one of the, the last days that, that there was a, uh, you know, people are jockeying for different places in the shade in the middle of the day. And I remember seeing this one spot that was a perfect place of, of shade. And I remember to think, and I wonder why the Haitians aren't going to that spot. So I'm thinking, hey, I'm going to go over here and enjoy this spot, right? And, and, uh, and I'm thinking that maybe they saved this for me. And maybe they did because there was a, an ant hill underneath the leaves that I did not know was there. And so I'm standing there enjoying the shade and I'm looking at them and smiling. They're looking at me and smiling, right? Because they're thinking, they, they call you Blancs, not in a derogatory way, but that's how they refer you to the Blancs, the white people. And, and so I'm standing there, all of a sudden I feel this intense burning sensation on my left foot, right? My whole entire foot. It's like, like somebody had rubbed Ben Gay or something all over, you know, my foot. And so I look down and it's absolutely covered in these little tiny fire ants, right? And so I jump up and they're, of course they're laughing and, and uh, I'm trying to get all these ants. My bag is covered in and, and ants. So it's like, now, now I know why this, we don't stand in this shade spot, right? You would rather suffer the sun. Jesus is saying to them in this, what I think is one of his greatest sermons, he's saying humans are ingenious. Humans find a way to endure. Humans find a way, even in the most difficult circumstances, to, to find some measure of relief. You're survivors, all of these people have traveled. All of these people have found the shelter of the shade of the mountain and the hill at some point in their life. And Jesus is saying to them, you think, you think that because of your courage, because of your ingenuity, that you will always find a way to escape misery. But what I'm saying to you today, not even the tallest mountain, not even the greatest shade, nothing of human effort of your own strength, of your own ability, is going to be able to enable you to escape the wrath of God if you choose to reject the forgiveness that's about ready to be unleashed into this world. He opens up in the text by saying, for the days that are coming. For the days that are coming are the days that began after the very first Easter. That very first Sunday morning when the stone was rolled away and Jesus raised himself to life was the beginning of the first day of the days of eternity. And it was from that day forward that the world had an opportunity to be reconciled to God in a way that had never been available to the world before. And Jesus is saying when those days come, it's not here yet, it's just three days away, but he's saying when those days are come, those days are upon us. When they get here, these things that I'm saying will be true. And he wraps up this message with this almost elusive statement about the green tree and the dry tree. In his reference to the green tree here in the Gospel of Luke, he's speaking of himself, the tree of life, the great giver of life. And what he's saying is, if the Father is willing 
to ask his son, the one who bears all of life, to suffer in such a way so that forgiveness might be brought to the world. You who are dry, you who are poor in spirit, you who are spiritually bankrupt, if you stand at the Father and say to him, I do not want the forgiveness that you give. I reject the grace and the mercy that you offer to me. If he's willing to ask me to pay such a great price to give you this gift that's free, what do you think is going to happen to you if you reject him when we've paid such a great price to bring you the gift of eternal life? As Jesus stands there before the world, taking his last few breaths before he yields himself to death so that he can conquer sin and death, he's saying to the world, the stakes are high. God's grace has a boundary. Mercy has a limit. And that boundary and that limit is dependent upon whether you will accept the gift that I bring to you this day. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. Actually, just Chris, I think, is going to come up. I want to read to you out of Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 27. It says, His purpose was for the nations to seek God, to seek after God, and perhaps to feel their way toward Him and find Him. Though He is not far away from any one of us, for in Him we live and move and have our being. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, Luke writes, we are His offspring. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now He commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn to him. It couldn't be more clear, the choice that's given to us today. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man that he has appointed and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. And when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt. That might be you here tonight. But others said, we want to hear more about this later. Maybe that's you here tonight. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him, and they became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. I'm going to invite you to stand with me. There's some people that are going to come stand at each of these tables here. Because what we wanted to do tonight to create in this moment is to create an opportunity that if you're here tonight and you look back into the story of your life and you can't find a moment where you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, tonight can be your moment. Just as we read in the, in, in the book of Acts, there were all kinds of people that stood around as 
Paul taught, and we know there's all kinds of people that are in this room tonight. There are people that have been walking with Jesus for many years, like many of us, and there are some of you here tonight, and you're only here because someone made you come, and and when you think about who Jesus is, that maybe there is contempt in your heart for the things of God, and maybe you're here tonight, and there's some curiosity has peaked in you. I'd like to hear more about what this guy's talking about. But there might be someone here tonight, like there was some 2,000 years ago, who were saying, I believe that Jesus is the Son of the living God, that He died for me, and that there is going to be a day of judgment that comes, but I don't want to stand in that place of judgment because I'm going to stand in a place of forgiveness, and I'm going to stand in that place of forgiveness today. I love in the book of Acts that real people's names are given to us, not just that man and that woman, because you're not just that man and that woman, that you are someone special to God. He knows your name. Those names are given to us in Scripture because in those places we're supposed to put our name. In the December of 1990, when I made my vow of devotion to Christ, my name became written in the story of that book is someone who used to laugh and someone who used to be curious finally became someone who said, today's the day that I'm going to take a stand. So this is what I'm going to ask you to do. We do it in different ways at different times. Sometimes we have you bow your head and raise your hand. Sometimes we create a moment of privacy. But I think in light of the story that we just read and the demonstration of courage that Jesus gave to us, that tonight's a night of public. That tonight's a night of saying, I want to be seen. That tonight's a night of saying, I want to be counted. Tonight's a night where I want to say, Jesus walked that road. I can certainly cover the distance between where I sit and where these people stand. So I'm just going to ask you, just right now, as I'm standing here, if you're here tonight and you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ and you want to make one tonight, I'm just going to invite you to come stand. Either way, whichever one you can get to. Don't worry about what the people that you came with are thinking of you. This is a moment between you and God. I'm just going to invite you to come. You might feel awkward. You might feel conspicuous. But I'm just saying there is a place of liberty that will unleash in your heart when you yield yourself to this moment. You just come. You come. Take a place standing with here at this table. Because we're about ready to take off the tops of this communion. And what we've said tonight is if you're here and you've never made a vow of devotion to Christ, then we want you to be at the front of the line you're going to eat your first bread and you're going to drink your first cup so father as we pray let it be that some people would find their way to the front of this church let it be god that people who have come in here tonight who have never made a vow of devotion to christ that they would say tonight's going to be the night where i take my first spiritual breath that even now as they hear me praying they're just going to work their way out of their seat they're going to find their way to this table They're going to take a stand with somebody that's up here tonight and that we're all going to celebrate as the onlookers of heaven come and give a great shout of praise. Let it be, God. Let it be. For the people that are here tonight, Father, that maybe they're the ones that stand in a place of contempt contempt of the things of God that We just pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit is just going to continue to bear witness of the truth of your word to their hearts. For the people that are here tonight that find themselves 
like we read in the book of Acts, in a place of curiosity, in a place of questioning, Father, we pray that they're going to ask their questions. We pray, Father, that they're going to be bold in asking the questions that are stirring in their heart. And we pray for divine appointments that you're going to cause people to cross their path so that those answers can come. And for the people here tonight who are walking with you, may it be, oh God, that every time that we drink of this cup and eat of this bread, it would be as if we're doing it for the first time, that we would never forget the great price that you paid so that we might have life and have it and have it to the full. In Jesus' name, and everybody said together, amen. There's people on the side that are here to pray with you tonight. We're going to go back into a song, and as we're singing this song together, just as you feel led, we want to invite you to come and take a piece of bread, which represents the body of Jesus that was broken for us, and the cup that represents his blood that was shed. And just in your own time, just as you feel ready, that you'll eat of that bread and that you'll drink of that cup. You might choose to linger here at the altar. You might choose to go to the side for prayer. You might choose to gather as a family. If you're spread out a little bit tonight, you might find each other and gather off to the side in the corner and partake of communion together. But let it be that as we worship the Creator tonight, that even though we may in our humanity be poor in spirit, that we can be overflowing tonight with the glory of God. Let's worship together. I'm gonna give. I'm gonna do a couple of giveaways. You guys look good. I haven't preached in 30 days, so I have a lot to say tonight. I know it's trouble for you, isn't it? It is trouble for you. Actually, the the the, the chunk that I prepared to teach on. We did the rescue invitation. You know, we're in a series uh, called Rescue, and and uh, so every week we're doing a rescue invitation. Then we're we're also talking about a rescue mandate that we have a responsibility to go out into the world and bring the gospel of Christ and. And, uh, and so the, the rescue mandate portion of my sermon, I really felt like God spoke to me about pushing that to next week, and then I'm supposed to talk a little bit about my trip to Haiti. I, I shouldn't be surprised by that, right? You spend eight days in the jungles of Haiti, right? And, and uh, you, you shouldn't be surprised that, that, uh, that, that God had some things to speak to my heart, so I'm going to share some of those. But i got to do these two giveaways. I'm going to do these iTunes gift cards to these two gentlemen right here on the front row, because, because when the service started, they were back here. Right? And then after a song or so, they're like, why should we sit back here when we could sit in the front? And so they kind of came out and around. I was like, come on. So we, we applaud courage. I know. Come on. It's better in the front, isn't it? I know. I know. You get spit on a little bit, but it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. So, hey, so I'm going to put these things away. I, I want to talk to you a little bit about what the, the last couple of weeks have been like for me and, and where's Marvin can raise his hand and and uh, we had the privilege of working alongside the Haitian people uh, to, to build a bridge in a, uh, a village called Garat and uh, it's it, I'm not sure you can find that but you can you can find a uh, Camp Perrin it's out way out on the peninsula of Haiti and about due east about due east of, uh, of Camp Perrin you'll find this little 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 village called Garat so this is a picture of the bridge that we had a, a privilege to help uh, alongside the Haitian people. We were eight days in country uh, building this bridge. And originally I had not planned to talk about the trip because we're so committed to this series, because we're so excited about this idea of the rescue invitation and the rescue mandate. And uh, so I didn't want to displace the series to talk about the trip. But while I was on the trip, I began to realize that this trip is the series that we're on. Th this trip is the message. We're on these trips because of series like Rescue and what we believe that we're supposed to do 
as a church together. And so I want to cast a little bit of it. I want to talk a little bit about the trip. I'm not talking a lot about the trip, but I want to talk about how this trip is going to have an impact on this church, even if you weren't able to be there. So this is a rant for one of the, uh, I need, I'm, we're going to get a bunch of pictures out on Facebook so that you can go check them out. And I've got some slides that I'm going to show you a little bit more a little bit later. But this was a ramp that leads up to the bridge. You kind of go up through those columns and then down on the suspended bridge. But this ramp is where a lot of the uh, cables are held in place. And so uh, th- this has to be filled with rocks. So in the United States, you get your iPhone, you call the, the, the rock company, right? And you say, I need a rock delivery at such and such a time on such and such a day. And such and such a guy rolls up in his truck and, uh, 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 and dumps the rocks. And it takes you about 30 minutes to spread them out to get them to where they're supposed to be. And he's got this iPhone with a little square in it. And you swipe your card and you go home and you're done for the day, right? It doesn't work that way in Haiti, right? You, you, you're you're going to fill this up with rocks. They give you a five-gallon bucket. You go out into the field And you find rocks to fill your bucket, and you bring them back and dump them into this ramp. It was a full day of work with a whole uh, accompaniment of people. And as you're finding these rocks, see, they're not like rocks that are on aisle 14 at Lowe's in the garden section, right? (laughs) These rocks are homes to creatures. And I'm just saying, if you have a problem with spiders, you need to go to Haiti. Because once you go to Haiti and encounter their spiders, you will never be afraid of a Virginia spider ever again for the rest of your life. Because these spiders are not spiders of all once you compare yourselves to the ones in Haiti. So you're picking up the rocks and these spiders, they're, they're like looking at you and say, oh, you try to take my rock, I'm taking you down, right? And so you're trying to not die as you're gathering the rocks to fill your bucket to get them back. And then all of a sudden we begin to realize as we're gathering these rocks that it's an overgrown cemetery that we're in. I know, I know, it's terrible. We're Christians, right? This is t- but then we realize the Haitian people, they're getting the rocks and from, from this cemetery. It's overgrown. And what we began to realize is that they're getting rocks from some grave stones, but not others. And I thought to myself, this is a great way to learn about people that you never had an opportunity to meet, right? Because the people that they're not getting rocks from, I'm thinking to myself, they remember that person. They go, oh, they were kind to me. Oh, they were nice. And then there's other grave sites where they're just taking every rock they can find. And it is as though this is their last opportunity to say, you were such a mean person. I'm taking every rock so that no one could ever find you ever again. Not that anyone would because no one loves you, right? You could just see them. It was very cathartic for the Haitian people to gather certain rocks from certain grave sites. So we're filling up these buckets and we're, and we're dumping them in into this ramp. We're working all day. And so at a point where we're taking a break, some of the kids that were kind of hanging out with us all during the week decided, hey, we're going to give, you know, an op- we're, we're going to help a little bit. We're going to help a little bit. And so they came and they got the buckets and they grabbed all these buckets and they began to march out into the field. You can see the field behind them there. And they went out and they all filled up a bucket once, came back and dumped it. And when they went back out for the second time, they started, you know, playing drums, you know, on the buckets. And they filled the buckets up a second time. But then when they came back after the second time, they decided, why should we fill these buckets with rocks when we can just make music, right? And so, so then they sit down and they gave us a song. That's the worship leader there. Yeah. 
My favorite part was when the kid, in the, yeah, you can clap for that. Come on. My favorite part was where the kid in the green shirt scratches his nose but never misses a beat. Did you see that? He's scratching his nose and never, 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 never misses a beat. So, hey, there's going to be some poignant parts in the story that we're going to share together tonight. Uh, there's, there's a little town called Manish, which is about a 30-minute drive, which is about, I don't know, two blocks by way of walking distance, right? Because you're driving up and down mountains. You think the truck is going to tip over backwards as you're going up these rocky cliffs. And, and, uh, and so we get to this town, Manish, because uh, uh, Bridges to Prosperity, which is the NGO that builds these bridges all over the world, who was hired by Established Footsteps, which is the ministry that uh, Sharon and Marvin Thomas lead, hires this company to build this, this bridge. And, uh, and they're going to check out this city, this little village, because they have a need for a bridge as well. And so we had the privilege of going with them to do an exploratory trip to see if they might qualify and, uh, for, for a, a bridge site. And so I have this question, do you see the child who isn't there? Because while we were in Manish and we were meeting with some of the community leaders, they began to tell us some stories about why they need a bridge. And, and they're not the same kind of stories about why we need bridges around here. Are you with me? We need bridges around here so that we don't have to be inconvenienced by traffic. We need, we need bridges around here so that, so that it takes us less time to get to places of, of, of convenience. They need bridges there because it's a matter of life and death. And so they told us the story. I want you to imagine that you're maybe one of those couples that's been struggling with infertility and, and finally, after many years, that you've finally been able to become pregnant. And you, you can't wait to meet this child, right? All throughout your, 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 your journey of being pregnant, you're just, your, your whole life is just put on hold for this one great, grand, glorious moment where this child is going to come into the world. Here, childbirth is still dangerous, but it's not the kind of danger that it is there. There's, there's very little that's going to come to you and a hospital by way of an emergency that there's not going to be staff there that's trained to handle. There's no staff in Haiti, not in these villages. There are a few clinics that are scattered about. And if you're lucky, you might live close to one of those clinics not separated by a river. But if you're separated by a river and it's at flood stage, then there's no help that's coming to you. There's no airlift, there's no 911, there's no ambulance that gets to you. You face your circumstance and you live or you die. And they told us the story as we're sitting there about a woman not too long ago who was pregnant and, and the river was at flood stage and she had some complications in her pregnancy and she needed to get to the clinic and when they got to the river, it was at a flood stage point. Sometimes the flood stage comes because it's the rainy season and it just stays at a flood level. But sometimes these massive storms come through and it's like flash flooding, right? And, and, and so it just kind of comes up. And so uh, they, they, there was no thought of risk with their pregnancy because it wasn't during the rainy season, but there was a flash flood. And so here's this woman standing on the banks of this river and she knows that if I can't cross this river, in all likelihood I'm going to die. And so is this child within me, the flood did not go down, and that became her grave. It's real stories that could not be more sobering. That when you stand in a place like that and hear stories like what we heard and you're hearing tonight, it does something inside of us, does it not? 
it causes something inside of us to say, come on, we have got to find a way to make a difference in the world in which we live. We've been reading this, this verse together as a church, Luke 5, 17 to 26. It says, when my situation is desperate and my efforts are failing and urgency surrounds me, I need to be rescued. It's one of our texts that we're going to be looking at week in and week out. And we're looking at this text in the same way that we already opened communion, where we're saying the human condition, we need to be rescued from ourselves through the forgiveness that only Christ can give. But when you begin to read in the book of James, it's a powerful book in the Bible. If you've never read it, it's short. You can check it out. You can read it in one sitting. And he makes, I'm, this is a paraphrase, a bold statement. It's not the gospel if you're not meeting people's practical need at the same time. You can tell them about the love of God, but if you're not helping meet their need, then the gospel is not what you brought to them in that moment. Most of us will live our entire lives and never once be in a circumstance or a situation where we need to be physically rescued to the Haitian people. It is the reality of their everyday life until they breathe their last. So these are some of the, the fellows that kind of ran with us while we were there. And uh, they, they, they kind of stayed with us. They would, you know, hand you the nails. They would hold the tools. Some of them had never seen power tools before. It was the coolest thing to teach some of these, these uh, village elders and some of the young men how to use these tools as we were working alongside them to build this bridge. There was one day where, 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 where Marvin and I snuck away on our lunch break. And then, and, because, uh, you know, right, you, got, you do that everywhere you go, right? If you ever had a job, you, you sneak away at least once on your lunch break. And so we were uh, uh, sneaking away on our lunch break and we were down in the river to cool off a little bit and we began to explore upstream and climb over some of these little rocky waterfalls and I guess it was a group of about eight or ten boys that, that came after us and they began to lead us up this river and they took us to this gorgeous place in this in, in this gorge it was probably a, a, a it was a about 10 feet deep there was this gorgeous pool it was it was almost Caribbean green the color of the water it's not at flood stage obviously at this at this level and uh, and so we got to play in the in, in, in the river but because Marvin was kind of the boss of the site nobody asked where we were so if you're gonna if you're gonna run away on your lunch make sure you run away with the person that's in charge so 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 anyway so 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 we're uh, uh so we got to know a lot of these little little kids and we couldn't I, you know marvin speaks a little bit of creole i speak hardly none except for a couple of words like where's the bathroom and and uh and so but we just you have this bond that transcends language you with me and, uh, and, and so, so, we're, so we're on this, on this trip, and, and so they're telling us some other stories here in this village where we're building this bridge about kids who go to school. School there is free if you can get there, if you can find one close enough. Some of these kids, they walk two hours every morning and walk home two hours every afternoon. It's, it's free to attend the school, but it's not free to be a part because they have to buy a uniform, right? They have to buy school supplies. And I want you to imagine a family that maybe they've never been to school. Maybe it's a mom and a dad and they're, they're, they're completely illiterate. Maybe their parents and their parents before them and every generation they can imagine that goes back as far as they can remember, they have never been to a school. And maybe this generation they've said, it's going to stop here. We're going to do whatever it takes to give our child an education. We're going to go without food. We're going to go without medication that we might need. We're going to do whatever it takes to scrape together every penny that we can find so they can have the uniform that they need, so that they can have the supplies that they need because, because we're going to give our kids a hope for a better future that education can offer. 
When these kids go off to school, if it's during the rainy season, they don't go because they know that if they cross the river, they might not be able to get back for, for, for a month or so at a time. But see, at the beginning of the rainy season, you're not sure when the storms are going to come, right? I don't have Wavy News 10. You with me? Talking about storm tracker. So some days, early on, these kids go to school. They leave early in the morning. They walk for two hours to get there. They're lucky there might be an adult that is working in that town can travel with them to give them some measure of protection or safety. But there are times in places like Garat before this bridge was built that a storm would come and that river would rise and those children come home from school and the parents are standing on one side of the bank, the children are on the other and they can't come home. Can, can you imagine? Can you imagine showing up to the bus stop of your child who's just on the other side of the street and there's nothing that you can do to get to them. Can you imagine what that would be like? And in that moment, those children turn, they walk back up that trail. Parents go back to their home. You can't go upstream because the river's just as treacherous there. You can't go downstream because the problem is the same there. There's no bridge for miles. And you only hope, you only hope that some family on the other side of that river takes in your child feeds them for as long as it takes until they can come home. It's hard for us to imagine that in our modern world, this is the reality of the circumstances of people. But it doesn't have to be. And it's not ever going to be the story of this community, not ever again. We cannot read the Bible with any degree of integrity and not come to the conclusion that God is going to ask us to pay a great price to reach other people to rescue. I watched the movie Noah this week, and I, I, I never actually went to see it in the movie theaters because most of the people I talked to didn't enjoy it, so I was, you know, taking the cheap way out and waited for it to come out, you know, so it hit Redbox this week. Anybody else get it on the Redbox this week? And so if you're like me, you probably experienced some disappointment with the movie because you, you kept waiting for Gandalf from Lord of the Rings to come rushing in. It was <laughs> like the director said, if they're going to have talking trees, I'm going to have rock giants, right? I will not be undone by the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And so I'm, I'm watching this movie with, with my boys. They had seen it when R.C. went. Went to, went to see it. But as I'm watching it, I was also struck by how perfectly they got some things. There were some moments that could not have been more true. There's this moment where Tubal Cain, who was a stowaway, which is not true on the ark, is, is, uh, is, 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 is there, and he says to one of Noah's sons to be a man. And he's not talking about masculinity, manhood. He's talking about humanity. He says to be a man, it means to live by your own will. And I thought, this director, whoever wrote this script, it is as though they've studied the Bible their whole lives because that's the message of God's word. To be a human means that you live by your own will. To be a child of God means that you live by the will of the creator. Josh Garrels, one of my new favorites that Pastor Justin keeps me current with my music or otherwise I'd still be listening to Phil Keggy. He has this song called Pilot Me, like you pilot a ship. I will arise and I will follow you over. Savior, please pilot me. Over the waves and through every sorrow, Savior, please pilot me. When I have no more strength left to follow, fall on my knees, pilot me. 
May your sun rise and lead me on over the seas. Savior, pilot me, O Lord. But you don't want to hear me say it. Let's listen to him sing it as we look at some of these pictures of Haiti together. Come on, you can clap for that. You guys are the reluctant clappers tonight, right? When the Starbucks picture came up, Hannah says, cheater. Like, oh, oh, but I am in unashamedly so, just so you know. They would heat up hot water over the open fire for me every morning in the stainless steel cup, and I would pour in my concoction and even converted them a little bit. They drink salted hot tea in the morning. Yes, they do. I know. Salted hot tea. It wasn't so bad. It wasn't so bad. So I left a bunch of vias for them. I'm hoping to convert them. So we'll see. We'll see. We're off the clock just a little bit tonight, not too much, because we've got a couple more songs that we want to do together tonight. I, I believe that tonight is, is going to be a, a Saturday night and a Sunday morning tomorrow in Williamsburg that we're going to look back on at the future of the church and say something changed in us as a church that weekend. People are going to come and say, when did you start building bridges in Haiti? We're going to say it was in the summer of 2014. People are going to ask, when, when did you all get a vision for, for, for this country and to build these bridges? We're going to say, in the summer of 2014. And some of you are going to say, and I was there the night we heard about it for the first time. I was there the night we heard about the woman who died by the riverside giving birth. I was there the night we heard about the children who couldn't find their way home to their families after school. And we decided on that night that we're going to do whatever we can. When you go away to a third world country for the very first time, you deal with serious guilt and shame when you come home. If you go on a trip for the first time, this wasn't part of our preparation because all of us who went on the trip had, have spent time in third world countries before. But when you go away to the, a third world for the first time, if you're on the Dominican Republic trip, Carrie is going to be talking to you about this. When you come home, you, 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 can ex, you can actually experience moments of depression because you feel so guilty for the resources that you have. Even if you are a person of modest means, to places like this, you're a king. You're a king. And if you're wise, you won't let that shame get the better of you. You will use that shame to fuel something deep inside of you to where you take that shame and you turn it into a feeling of being empowered. I've been to third world country many times, and when I come back, I don't feel feelings of guilt anymore. What I feel is excitement. What I feel is enthusiasm because I know that God chose me to live in the most prosperous nation in the world, not so that I can live a life of luxury, so that I, but so that I can make a difference. And as a church, what I am saying to you is that we're going to build some bridges. That as a church, what I'm saying to you is part of our future, is part of our DNA, is part of who we're going to become as a congregation together. We're going to touch lots of places throughout the world, especially right here in our own backyard, but we are going to touch the nation of Haiti and we're going to build some bridges together. Whether or not you can go or not, you can build a bridge by getting behind the teams that go, and by giving when you have an opportunity. We're not building towards an offering tonight, so don't get nervous if you're a visitor. Right? But we do something called faith promise every year. Every year we pray, and, and we ask God to give us a number. 
and then we believe by faith that God's going to provide it. We don't know where that money's going to come from, and it's something that we've, we've done periodically, but we did it this year for the whole year, and we're going to do it every year for the future of our church. Every campus is doing it, and uh, we believe by faith that God's going to provide that number, and we've read some faith promise stories to you, and then we make a promise that, that when God provides it, we give to the faith promise fund, and that fund goes to many things, but one of the things that goes is to fund our missions all around the world. We had over $30,000 in faith promise promises this year, and it's called a faith promise because you don't put your name on it, nobody follows up with you, it's not a pledge drive, it's just between you and God, and we've got well over $17,000 of faith promise monies have already come in this year. I know you can clap for that. But I want to see the rest of it come in. And so what I'm saying to you is if you've been a part of Faith Promise and your money hasn't come in yet, ours hasn't either, but the year's not over yet. The year's not over yet. And, and the some $15,000 that I'm believing is still going to come in by the end of December pays for half a bridge. One of those bridges that we built costs about $30,000 to build. And so I'm believing that by the end of this year, we're going to have half of the money that we need to build a bridge in 2015. So I'm just saying to you tonight, if your faith promise has come in, you spend some time on your knees every day praying for everybody else's faith promise to come in. And those of us who are still waiting for ours, we're, we're hoping to give the biggest faith promise that we've ever given in our lives. We're believing God that that money's going to come in because there's bridges that are supposed to be built all around the world, but the ones we're going to build, we're going to build together in Haiti. So the picture that, that wrapped up as the, as the worship team comes back up, the, the last picture that you saw on the screen up there, if you notice, was a heart-shaped rock. Did you see that? And so I, I finished with that one because if you remember at the beginning of, of the slideshow, there were some pictures of landscape and, and, uh, and there were some, that was, you could see this little tiny white roof tucked into the side of a, of a mountain. Some of the mountain ranges in Haiti uh, uh, go beyond 9,000 feet, so they're pretty impressive mountain ranges there. And so, so that little wet, white speck that was embedded in that mountainside was the, was the pastor's house where we were staying. Actually, the, what you saw was an unfinished school in front of his house. You couldn't even see his house from that far away. And so we're tucked into the side of this, of this mountain. And, and there in front of his house was like an old concrete patio that kind of overlooked this little cliff that dropped down about six feet. And, and, and on that heart-shaped rock was the only place that I could stand. But if I stood there, I could get through to Vanessa on one ring. If I stepped to the right, the call wouldn't go through. If I stepped to the left, I kid you not, Marvin was there. The, the call wouldn't go. If I, if I wasn't on that rock, one foot in each side of that heart, but if I was on that rock, the call would go through the first time. I'm telling you, all the way from that mountainside in Haiti, it sounded like she was just around the corner. It was unbelievable. Unbelievable. I'm sharing that with you tonight because when you posture yourself in a place of prayer, you will hear from God with great clarity. When you posture yourself in a place of prayer, you will hear from God with great clarity. And He is going to speak to us as a church family of how we're supposed to touch the world. Stand with me. Father, as we step into these two songs that we're going to worship together, Father, let it be that we just don't go through the motions. Let it be that, that, that we just not just casually participate, God, but that, 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 that we're going to posture ourselves, that we're standing on the rock. And that you're going to begin to pour out things into our heart that we need to hear you say to us. 
And let it be, oh God, that all of us, even though we might hear different things because we're in different walks of life than one from the next, that all of us are going to hear at least one thing that is the same. That we will never fulfill our divine purpose until we embrace a collective destiny. And that all of us are going to be called, whether it's this church or some church somewhere, that you're going to call all of us to join in with all that we are, rolling up our sleeves, laboring and working with all that we have, with our energy, with our time, with our talents, and even with our money, that we might continue on the work, Jesus, that you began 2,000 years ago when you came to build your church and to establish your kingdom, that we're going to build those kinds of churches that rest upon who you are and the revelation of your great name and that we're going to be a book of James kind of congregation that we don't bring the gospel without a, a labor in tow. And that God, you who has built a bridge to us, may it be that we bring the bridge of the gospel to the world, but also bridges to hurting places like Haiti so children don't have to suffer still another day. In Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together.